<clears throat> Thanks, Joe. Uh, yeah, as, as you mentioned, my name is Drew Dolan. I've uh, been a member here at Riverbend for the past seven years, uh, ever since my wife and I moved to the Lehigh Valley. And during that time, I've worked uh, right across the street here at Bebron as an engineer. And our two young kids, Carson and Lydia, have been with us as well. And as he just mentioned, uh, for the past year or so, I've been involved with the CLIMB Youth Ministry, a, a group that was launched by Keith here and named uh, by him. And it's been such a joy to uh, meet. Right now we're meeting once a month uh, after church for lunches with middle school and high schoolers. And you know, we play some truly silly, awesome games, uh, most of which have to do with like deception and like lying to each other. So it's a great thing to rally around as a church youth group, but they're really fun. And if you've been a part of it, I know you guys have a blast with those things. And in addition to all these deception games, we do want to uh, learn together and wrestle with questions of faith together. And um, we normally go over what that morning's passage was about and what the sermon is teaching us specifically for those uh, people who are in that stage of life. Um, and one of the ways we've been uh, interacting with the verses that we go over on a Sunday morning is doing this thing I like to call turning the verse around. And I got this from someone who explained that scripture is like a diamond. And as you turn the diamond, it reflects light in different ways. Um, it's not going to be the same every time you look at it. You turn it around, you see different colors and shapes and angles and you know, diamond things. Um, but the point being, you know, the, the word of God is living and active, and it's ready to reveal something new to us. Um, and when it feels maybe stale or overly familiar to us, it may be that we just need to turn it around and see some new beauty reflected in it that we haven't appreciated before. To those of you who have been in church for a long time, and probably to many of you who haven't, this story that we'll be going through here today is one you may be familiar with. It's where Jesus points out during the Last Supper that Judas is going to betray him. It's integral to the story of Easter that we just celebrated, um, and it's one that's in the book of Matthew, it's in the book of Mark, it's in the book of Luke, it's in the book of John here that we'll be looking at today. Um, and so as we zoom in on Jesus and Judas interacting here during the Last Supper, we want it to not just be stale to us or some matter-of-fact event that gets us to, you know, the resurrection. But we want to turn it over and look for that refracted beauty and profoundness in what it's revealing to us about God, what it's revealing to us about ourselves, and what it reveals to us about how we should be responding to God. And so would you turn with me, either in your own books uh, or Bibles or on the screen here to John chapter 13. We're going to be continuing where we left off last week with verse 18. And so would you uh, join me as we, we'll just go through this entire passage in one, uh, one shot here. <clears throat> it says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. 
One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So as we unpack this passage, you know, first I think, you know, off the bat we realize there's something just weird about this passage, right? Like it it doesn't make sense if you were to think of it just acted out in on the screen or something like that when we have no context. It's like me saying, you know, someone in this room is going to be the betrayer, and you all ask me who is it? And I say, the one who I tag is the betrayer. And I go over and... (laughs) And then, Andy, you're it. And he gets up and leaves. You're like, why did he just do that? (laughs) What what just happened there? What's he talking about? It seems like it should be obvious what I I just did and who I'm identifying as the betrayer. That can't possibly be how this scene is going down, right? The disciples can't be that clueless to what's going on in this interaction. Um, And so sometimes it can be a little distracting how bizarre this scene just seems on on its uh, surface. But what we want to do before we get distracted by that is unpack what is actually going on here, um, but turn the situation around like this diamond and see how it reveals much to us about God's love our sin, and his throne. And so as we start to see this refracted beauty, we turn to first his love. Us being in the sermon series about how love has won and how Jesus has loved his own to his end, um, we see a great depiction of this love here with Judas. This is passage we're starting at. It starts with Jesus saying this. He says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And here Jesus is quoting Psalm 41, uh, verse 9. And the rest of that verse, it says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus here is identifying Judas as his close friend. And you think about their time together. And Judas uh, and Jesus, they lived and worked together for the sake of the kingdom of God for years together. Jesus he went up to Judas at the beginning of his ministry and said, follow me. And he watched as Judas faithfully obeyed him. He rejoiced when Judas came back after being given power to uh, heal people and cast out demons and proclaim God's kingdom. Uh, Jesus, he performed miracles that only Judas and the other disciples knew about. He taught them specific things that were meant to stay hidden from the public. And as we just read last week, Jesus washed Judas's feet. Jesus, he loved his friend Judas. And we see this very human side of Jesus here where it says in verse 21 um, that after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
we know that part of this troubled spirit and this turmoil within is because Jesus knows what is coming, that in just a few hours, he knows the physical and spiritual pain that's waiting for him on the cross where he's separated from his father for our sake. But there's also a reason this troubled spirit is mentioned as he announces about the betrayal because part of Jesus being fully human is that he feels the hurt and pain of betrayal by a close friend. Maybe you've felt this before where someone so close to you has done something and you just can't believe they would have done that. Jesus, he felt that too. Or maybe you've been that person uh, who's been the betrayer. And the good news here is that Jesus, he continues to love even Judas to the end. It continues, uh, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John referring to himself that way, uh, was reclining at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So one of the things I know bothers some people, or at least really bothered one of my former pastors here, is that the Bible uses this phrase, reclining at table. Like we've translated all these other phrases to something more modern, but we've kept this phrase, reclining at table. Like why don't we just say, sitting down at dinner together, um, or something like that that makes a little more sense to us. Um, and Rich unpacked this for a bit, last, a, a bit for us last week, but part of the reason the translators haven't given up this phrase reclining at table and switched it out for sitting at dinner together or eating dinner together is because this reclining at table conveys this picture and this image that's very different uh, from what we would do when we're eating dinner together. Um, So this here is a depiction of what the Last Supper in the Greco-Roman time would likely look like. Last week at the climb, uh, we tried this, right? We tried to eat lunch together like this. Um, We lasted about 10 seconds because first it was very weird (laughs) to lay down like this. And second, it hurt. I think we needed those like special dinner pillows that they've got there. Um, It was not comfortable. But, you know, these this type of meal together would, would be this closeness um, and comfort with one another uh, that, that the scene here is conveying to us. It's not at all like Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper where they're all in a row, which also would be very weird, right, if you're all in a row facing the same way while you're eating. Um, but when we look at this scene again and picture, you know, this is what it looked like, maybe it starts to make a little bit more sense to us because the scripture, it says that John is sitting next to Jesus uh, presumably the one on the right side there. And you know, Peter is in a position somewhere else, we don't know which one, where he can't really ask Jesus a question. So he waves at John or does one of those things like, look at me, but don't really look at me, um, and try to say, hey, ask Jesus who he's talking about. And John, you know, he leans back against Jesus and says, who, who are you talking about? And um, he then tells John that it's he who he's going to hand the bread to, and that's who's going to betray him. And then he goes and does that to Judas, who's sitting at his left-hand side here. And so, you know, as we think about, you know, that very obvious thing where I went and tagged Andy, maybe the scene is a little more subtle than that. Maybe it's not quite so uh, dramatic as Jesus announcing to everybody, here's my betrayer. And John, the one recording this, maybe had some special insight into this interaction being there at his side. Um, So another thing about this seating arrangement is that the person at the left-hand side is the person 
uh, of honor, the one who's seated to the left-hand side of the host. And it would also be the person, this person that the host can f serve food directly to as they introduce the different portions of the meal. So not only is Judas here at the meal with him in this place of closeness and comfort, not only did Jesus just wash his feet, but he's sitting there in the seat of honor. And Jesus allows us all while knowing what he's about to do. So we know that Jesus did love Judas all the way to the end. Um, but as we move forward in this scene, when we turn the diamond here and we see this ominous shade reflected, and the reflection here is about the reality of sin, uh, not just sin in general, but also our personal sin. When we think of Judas, or at least when I think of Judas, I imagine a sort of sketchy character, you know, always lurking in the shadows while the rest of the disciples are palling around and high-fiving and having fun and being in awe of Jesus and what he's doing. Um, and when we read the Bible, it kind of doesn't give Judas much of a chance, Judas must have much of a chance in our minds, right? The, the list normally goes something like Simon, the other Simon, Judas, not Iscariot, Matthew, Thaddeus, Nathaniel, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, right? Like right away, we just have this notion about who Ju Judas is. Um, but the reality of it is that to the other disciples, um, he did not seem in the least bit suspicious. We see that from the reaction here in verse 27. Um, it says, Then after he, Judas, had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. You know, all this talk of betrayal, and then Judas leaving like this very abruptly, the disciples still don't suspect him. And that's because up until you know, his betrayal, Judas looked to them like a normal disciple like Nathaniel, like Thaddeus, like Philip, like Thomas, or one of the other disciples that we really don't know all that much about or hear, hear mentioned too often. And because the disciples, they were there when Jesus picked Judas out of whatever it was he was doing and told Judas to follow him. And um, Judas was with all of them when they saw Jesus' miracles. He went, he went out with them two by two, and he had a partner who was there while he, they watched Judas perform signs that only could be done by the power of God and proclaiming about the kingdom of God. And Judas was there in the boat with them all when they saw Jesus calming the sea with a word and walking to them on top of the water. He was there when Jesus turned one boy's lunch into food for 5,000 people. And so the disciples have no reason to suspect that Judas is falling away from the one whom they've centered their life around. And it's to this Judas, this friend, whom they've spent several years working alongside, that this then happens to. It says, after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. So, whoa, what just happened? Like, why, you know, did this just come out of nowhere? Did Satan just enter into him? No control by Judas at all, and boom, the rest is history. Could that just happen to any of us at any point in time? You know, it's a really uncomfortable thought here. And so we want to consider first a look at the enemy, you know, and if you go to the next slide, first a look at the enemy and then a look at Judas' heart to see how this could have gotten to this point. The Bible, it talks about the devil, this Satan mentioned here as the father of lies, the one whose intentions are to turn all of creation against the creator. 
to be deceived about the one, or to be deceived about who they are and to doubt the goodness of God. It says in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 8, be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There is an enemy of God watching for opportunities to sow seeds of dissension and rebellion in our hearts and in our minds. It happens invisibly. You know, we see this in couples who seem perfectly fine and even spiritually strong together end up in the messiest of divorces. We see church leaders grow mega platforms and impact hundreds of thousands of people's faiths and then have some hideous truths come up about what they've done or what they've allowed to happen. And then uh, we also, you know, thinking about this enemy, want to consider the character of Judas. And is there anything we can learn about how he personally might have gotten to this point, how he turned against the one who he initially dropped everything to follow after? Earlier in the evening of the Passover meal, Rich went over this verse. Uh, It says that the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So there's already workings going on here, even in this same evening. Um, The deceitfulness of the enemy was already at work, but not to the extent where Satan had entered into him. There's something even earlier happening. Um, And even uh, before that, last month or so, we were reading about how Mary had honored Jesus by pouring out the expensive ointment on Jesus' feet. And Judas, he says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And this is really one of the only indications we see of the sinister behavior of Judas before the betrayal. And it's a relatively small thing, to be honest, right? It's taking a few bucks out of the money bag. You know, he was still making sure that they had enough food. He was making sure they still had places to stay. He maybe even thought, I probably deserve a little something for the one being responsible with taking care of all this stuff, right? It's not that bad. Maybe you've fallen into a similar line of thinking somewhere in your life. I can probably get away with misrepresenting that on my taxes. Uh, It's okay if I look at that website. So many other people do it. I can take credit for that thing that my my coworker did. They probably would do the same to me. I can cheat on this assignment. It's just busy work anyway. I can take my anger and my stress out on my kids. It'll probably help them build character, right? We we allow these small rebellions. And so I ask you, what small rebellion are you allowing in your life against the God of the universe? Um, As uh, we were getting ready for the egg hunt a few weeks ago, as many of you remember, we had to pivot from the original plan of having it at the beautiful Wayne Group Park in Northampton to having it at our front yard here at Riverbend. And I want to give a huge shout out to Sam and Alyssa and everyone involved for having a very clear strategy for weather and saying, if it it might rain, if it rains, we'll let you know by this time. And here's the backup plan and just executed perfectly. And the the event was beautiful. And we had a lot of people from the community come out, a lot of people who aren't associated with our church even stay for service afterwards. But for me, when I heard that they were making this change, the first thing I thought of was all the goose poop. if you walked around there before the egg hunt, you would probably know what I'm talking about. Um, and I wasn't the only one who thought of it. You can go to the next slide, yeah. Um, so, uh, because I got there early and I had rakes, which by the way, rakes and goose poop, not the way to do it. it just doesn't work, it just makes it worse. 
Um, but people were already there, ready to go, picking up poop. You know, the Harrises were there, Erlins and Hannahs were there. Um, and by the time the egg hunt, egg hunt got started, um, we picked up something like 10 to 15 pounds of goose poop. And I wish I brought a scale, but that would all have been pretty weird. Why would I want to bring a scale? But yeah, it was impressive, both for the people who helped, um, but also for the geese, right? I mean, shout out. Right? <laughs> but as we're scooping, and I'm, I'm pre I know I'm preaching in a few weeks about this Last Supper scene and about, you know, a big part of it is the washing of the feet and how dirty people's feet were back then. And I just started thinking, what would it be like if I just took my shoes off and ran barefoot through all this stuff before we picked it up? And how disgusting my feet would be. And then looking down and seeing that Jesus is there with a towel wrapped around his waist, ready to wash them. And in making it personal to me, it, it gave me a new perspective. Because when you think of Jesus washing feet, you look down and see him cleaning yours. Because Jesus, you know, in washing of the feet, he reminds, it's a reminder to us of how he took our sin and removed it as far as the east is from the west, as the psalm says. It's how he stands ready to forgive if we would let him. Um, but so often we think about how dirty someone else's feet are, or to keep it with the metaphor, how much they need Jesus in their life. Um, but try to think with me now, not of how much someone else's feet need to be washed, but your own. Like you just ran barefoot through our pre-egg hunt yard here at Riverbend, right? And it's a very vulnerable thing, thinking about someone being so close to the part of you that might be the worst, or in the case of feet, the smelliest. Um, but, you know, I, I think of myself and I look down at Jesus and say, no, like, I've stepped in some really nasty stuff, like, and I did it on purpose. Like, I don't deserve this. This is the third time this week that I drank to excess. Or, Jesus, I stepped in it again. I just am powerless over lust in my life. Jesus, my anger, it got the better of me again. And, you know, I did some things or said some things. I don't know that there's any coming back from this. Or in Judas' case, he could have said, Jesus, my desire for money is out of control, and I'm doing things and thinking about things that are leading me further from you. As Sam said before we started here, that you know, the good news is that while our sin is worse than we ever imagined, uh, we are loved than more than we ever dreamed possible. Because Jesus, he says, I know. He takes his towel he dips it in the water. He wipes our feet. And he says, I've set you free from this. Keep coming back to me and you'll find something so much better. Don't go back there again. It's, it's really not too late. The Apostle Paul, he, he's talking to people who may feel like it is too late for them and that maybe they weren't enough. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this to them. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus says that you are good enough. You've been made good enough by what I've done for you, and you will have the power to walk away from those things by the Spirit whom I've given you. And when we fall short, Jesus gives us and, and gave Judas the opportunity to repent. We talked about this teshuva that Rich had led us through last week, last week of confessing, of expressing regret, and then turning into a new direction. Judas doesn't do this, and I pray that we do. Another hint we see of Judas's rebellion taking hold in his heart is in the parallel account of Matthew. 
Here we see the scene described this way at the Last Supper. It says, as they were eating, he said, uh, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, is it I, Lord? And Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? Um, I hadn't caught this before I started studying this passage. And uh, all the other disciples all throughout scripture often address Jesus as Lord. Judas never once is recorded as calling Jesus Lord. And, you know, this, this term Lord is, is indicating that they're giving him authority and power in their life. And I don't want to overanalyze this and make it more than perhaps is what is being said here, but I think it, this nuance does preach a powerful point to us. Um, because are you just looking to Jesus as teacher, this rabbi, or as just an example, or as someone who can really, a great community can rally around and some great social good can come of rallying around him? Or maybe you go a step further and you think of him, yeah, he is divine. He is one sent from God, or he is God himself. Maybe you think or believe all these things about Jesus, but Judas' response here is a warning to us that if Jesus is not Lord of your life, something else is or will be. Jesus, he warns us of this directly, right? He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Because God is loving enough not to force himself onto the throne of your life as your Lord. And it's been said that hell is the ultimate monument to human independence, that you either at the end of the day have the opportunity to say to God, thy will be done, or God will say to you, thy will be done, and allow you to keep that seat on the throne for yourself. But as we get to the last part of our time together, we see that Jesus' rightful place is on the throne, and he proves that he is on the throne over all of creation and over all of the universe. Because as Jesus predicts his betrayal, he says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Jesus here, he uses the phrase, I am he, which would invoke this claim to being God, hearkening back to our I am series that we did as we started through John. Um, God uses the name I am to introduce himself to Moses and to God's people in the Old Testament. And Jesus now scandalously uses this phrase when talking about himself. Uh, In this one sentence, we can turn that over and see it reflecting a few truths, right? That Jesus, he knew that Judas was going to betray him from the beginning. And Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God. And that while Satan thought he was using Judas as a puppet for his plans to usurp God, God was using it for good. Because this passage here of betrayal is one we see God's sovereignty at work. And maybe this word sovereignty doesn't have much meaning to you. Uh, Maybe you've not heard it before. Maybe it just sounds like a Christianese word, right? We don't use it very often outside of the church. Um, But what it means is that God is fully and utterly in control, even in the evil. Perhaps nowhere in the Bible is this better summed up than in the story of Joseph in Genesis. Um, Because Joseph's brothers, who were at that time the entirety of the nation of Israel, Israel was literally their father, he, uh, those brothers tried to kill Joseph. They had a change of heart and they decided to make a profit off this whole deal instead and sold him into slavery. So this led to a chain of events where 
God sovereignly used uh, all of this to ultimately put Joseph in a position within the kingdom of Egypt where he had the power to save uh, the people of Israel, these brothers of his that tried to betray him from starvation. And so it's in this time that Joseph says this um, in Genesis chapter 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Because evil, it doesn't originate from God. That's not what this means. But God does allow it to pass through his fingers. And he even uses it for his purposes. The story of Judas is a story of God's sovereignty and Jesus being in control even when it looks like he's not. Even in the execution of the author of life, God uses it to execute the greatest rescue story ever told. So where in your life does it feel like God has allowed evil to reign? And how could it be for good? Right, think about those things. And um, you know, maybe as you ponder these things, the first thing that comes to mind is that they can't be for good. These things that God has allowed for so long, school shootings, genocide, war, or maybe some personal anguish, either that you've been battling or something that's been done against you, um, you cannot just see any good in it. And you're just not buying this whole thing of a sovereign God. There's a popular argument about the existence of God called the problem of evil, which essentially says that God can't be all-powerful and all-loving with all the suffering that exists in the world. Summed up, it's either that God is either not good or he's not God. And when I think about how to answer to that, the, the first kind of thing that comes to mind is this Christian hip-hop song, oddly enough, <laughs> um, called Sovereign by Beautiful Eulogy. Um, I'm going to try to just say these words. It's a little hard to say them. I'm not going to rap. No one wants that. No one wants that. <laughs> you don't. All right. So it says, this world exists because you've commanded it. So is your hand in it? Or have you handed it over to man and turned away and abandoned it? Did you try your best and then left man to handle the rest? Will, you find, will your plans find success or should we second guess? When world leaders and deceivers eager to ch puff their chests, is life a game of chess? Do you have these kings in check? With so much evil, how can we believe you're good? But I finally understood when I saw that man nailed to wood. Because here, God is not some dispassionate chess master. We follow a God who didn't look uncaringly at the suffering around us, the suffering that, by the way, we ourselves are so responsible for, but he entered into it. And when it feels like the wall of evil, walls of evil and hopelessness are closing in all around him there on the cross, he triumphed over it. And he loves us so much that he invites us onto his victory tour for all of eternity. Because betrayal doesn't get the final word. Greed doesn't get the final word. Corruption and power don't get the final word. Murder and death do not get the final word. God gets the final word. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a, a German pastor who was imprisoned and eventually killed in a Nazi prison. And he penned from this prison that only the suffering God can help. Because he is the one who saw into the depths of our suffering and into the depths of our sin, but loved us enough to open the heavens and come down into it. Let this God help and sit with you in your anguish, whether it's something you've done or something done to you. Give up your seat and let him sit on the throne. Because we see here in the betrayal by a close friend that 
even in these most heart-wrenching of times, that he is in control and he is good. Would you pray with me together this morning? Father God, we're so grateful for you um, revealing to us here in this passage that, yes, while the depths of our sin uh, and the capabilities that we have go all the way to betraying even the God of the universe, you offer out to us uh, a chance to repent. You wash us of this. You remind us of how we are set free from that sin which clings so closely. Um, God, help us to turn to you and allow you to wash us. Help us to turn to you and receive with joy the, the food that you offer out to us and sit with closeness with you in this way that you extend out to us. God, we pray now that you soften our hearts, um, reveal any sin that we're justifying in our life and allow ourselves uh, to be set free from it. Remind us that you have called us good enough, uh, perfect in your eyes because of the perfect life of your son. And God, we pray now that you uh, use these words, take root in our life uh, as we go about our week. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.